We are in a series of messages, Unstoppable, Unstoppable. We're walking our way through the book of Acts. And if no one else is enjoying it, I am. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right up front, I'm having, a, I'm having a blast. I really am. This is a, I don't know how many times, I think this is the second time I've worked my way through the book of Acts verse by verse. And I'm just having so much fun with this series. And I trust that it's being a blessing to you as well. Well, you know, something all of us have in common is that we call attention to certain dates. For example, a birthday, like 1950, or a, a high school graduation day, like 1973. You say, Gary didn't hear that. Yeah, you're right, I didn't, I didn't let that know, be known. But there's one date I'm going to tell you about. It's August 21st, 1976. Marcy and I are getting ready to celebrate 45 years of marriage. I can't, she is so blessed. You know, it's just, she is so blessed. Believe me, the opposite, the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. I was thinking about it this morning as I was, as I was looking again at this. And I just married above my, my pay grade. You know, it just, I'm just so blessed in so many ways. But dates are an interesting, they're an interesting thing. And as I was thinking about it, uh, let me just walk through a couple. Let me walk just through a couple. September 11th, 2001. Don't have to say much about it, do I? But we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that date. It's hard to believe, isn't it? You know, I, I, what about this one? January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation. That's a significant date in history. November 9th, 1989, the Berlin Wall that many grew up just being a regular part of our life came down. Now, what about this? July 20th, 1969, somebody walked on the moon for the first time. I, I, can, I watched it on TV that was about this big, that was sitting on a TV tray. Some of you are going, what's a TV tray? It was a tiny little black and white television, and I was sitting in front of that thing going, this is the coolest thing in the world. Now the next date is when they're going to land on Mars. Can't wait, can't wait. Anyway, another significant date. Here's another one. December 7th, 1941. Very significant. July 4th, 1776. Independence Day. October 24th, 1929. The beginning of the Great Depression after the stock market crashed on that day. Black Thursday is what it was called. Here's another one. One more. AD 34. You go, what? Never heard of that one. Well, let me unpack it a little bit. It's one you may not be familiar with today, but someone has written this. It has been considered one of the most crucial events in the history of God's dealing with people. It was the year that Saul of Tarsus had a road, a Damascus road experience. From that point on, his life was changed, as was the life of the church down through all of history. Think about the impact of that day. A man who has incredible credentials, amazingly amazing intellect, incredible contacts and connections, and then he would, in a very dramatic encounter, come to faith in Christ, and then we have the benefit of 14 letters that he wrote literally unpack the gospel of Jesus Christ for you and me and for all 
generations. It was an extraordinary day. And so I've titled the message this morning, The Apostle, the Apostle Formerly Known as Saul. The Apostle Formerly Known as Saul. And the point of that is simply there was a definite dramatic change that occurred in his life. And we will most, most of us will call him Paul. We don't call him Saul. Why? Because of the transformation that has happened in him. And we see it very evidently in the book of Acts and then throughout his writings in the New Testament. So I want to look at one portion of scripture uh, of this conversion story. And we'll look at, we're going to look at all of chapter 9, a portion of chapter 9 today. But the conversion story of Paul, or Saul, the conversion of Saul to Paul, is written three times in the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote Acts, included the same story three times. Now that just in and of itself is very significant. Look at this one, Acts 26, verse number four. The Jewish people all know, this is Paul's defense, one of Paul's defenses before uh, some Roman leaders. The Jewish people all know the way that I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They had known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion. Living as a Pharisee, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. I mean, this is a guy who was zealous for what he believed. Saul is a force to be reckoned with. There's no question. When you read his story, you see this is a formidable individual. And something I say often is that when Scripture repeats something again and again, we need to take note of that. That is not coincidental that Luke includes the story of, of Saul's conversion three different times in this book titled Acts. We need to take note of it because there's something we can learn from it, something we can grow through it. So what I want to do today is I want to give you five observations from this, this road, this Damascus Road experience that Paul, where Paul was converted from Saul to Paul. Before we do, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Speak life to us, we pray, and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. The first, the first observation is this divine intervention, divine intervention. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues to Damascus, so that, he, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he, couldn't see no, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In two, since 2005, uh, the Arts and Entertainment Network has aired a reality program called Intervention. 322 episodes. Now, Intervention, and Intervention is the act of interfering with the outcome or course as to prevent harm or improve functioning. So what happens is, if you've ever seen the show, an individual is in a particular 
maybe they have substance abuse issues, whatever the issues are, the family and friends gather around and they intervene without the individual knowing that they're going to do this. The person is coming to that particular gathering believing something else is happening. That's exactly what happened to Paul. Paul was, he was, he was, Saul was going from Jerusalem to Damascus. He had orders. He had one thing in mind. I'm going to get as many as I can. I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem so they can be tried. And we can eradicate this thing once and for all. That was his intention. But something happened. God divinely intervened in his life. And that divine intervention changed everything. It changed everything. And it is so incredibly important that we not miss the significance of that divine intervention it it is it is fascinating to me when i think of how god puts things together even this morning when we come to this message and we gather together and we have communion together it really is a it really is god's divine intervention in into this world and into our need and god has great desires to intervene in each of our lives if we are, if I think we're willing, and some of us maybe on another pathway, on another road, never thinking that that would happen, but God can intervene. And it's interesting too, as I mentioned, that Luke uses this story three times. In one of those accounts, this is what we read, Saul, Saul, as he's recounting again this story, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that all mean? God intervened and Saul was transformed. God divinely interrupted his plans and his life was changed. Say this, Saul was converted, but he didn't see it coming. Or did he? Or did he? You notice, as I read a moment ago, one of the accounts, it says, why do you, Jesus is saying to Paul, why do you kick against the goads? What in the world does that mean? The goads would essentially be the promptings of the Holy Spirit in his life that had already been happening, such as he could have been very confused when his teacher, Gamaliel, was defending these individuals. This is of God. You're not going to be able to stop it. He would have said, what are you saying? What is that all about? When he sees Stephen, the face like an angel, he hears what Stephen has to say. He is a witness to all that is happening. He's kicking against the goat. Something is going on most likely in his life, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I would say today, I am so grateful for the promptings of the Holy Spirit in my life that drive me back into a place to be sensitive to what God is saying to me. And we all need to not kick against the goads, but rather to understand them for what they are and respond to God as God desires to divinely intervene in your life and in mine. I am so grateful that God wants to interrupt the mess I make of my life. Can anybody else say amen to that? Because when we take charge of our lives, we just flat mess it up. We all mess it up. God desires he he has initiative in our lives and i'm so grateful for that and i wonder so you see paul god was seeking paul and god is seeking us you see to be converted is not a scary word it simply means to turn around to turn around and and for saul he needed to turn around (laughs) he needed to turn listen listen to how paul he needed intervention listen to how he described himself romans 7 what a wretched man i am goodness Galatians 1, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted the church. I did my best to destroy it. 1 Timothy 1, 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This saying is true, and I can be trusted. And I was the worst sinner of all. Now, this is more than being self-deprecating. He is simply making a self-assessment prior to his relationship with Jesus. He was a mess. And I can just go on record to say, so am I. And so are we. Until Jesus intervenes in our life, we're messed up. All of these descriptions could fit each one of us. This is far more than self-deprecation. It's his self-assessment, and he needed an intervention. He needed to turn around. What about us? What about us? Let's do a little bit of self-assessment. Okay? Is anger an issue? How about greed? Is there, is there a substance controlling your life? What about your thought life? Does it honor God? Are you in a relationship that does not honor God? Are, are, how are you doing with pride? How about lust? Jealousy? Lying? Envy? Admitting there are issues is not being self-deprecating. It is taking an honest self-assessment of us, allowing God's prompting by his spirit in our lives to drive us to a place where he can intervene so that we can turn around, be converted, and move in the direction that God desires that we would move. Now, to me, that's as good as it gets. And I think I would say it this way. Let's just get honest with God. Let's just be honest with God. What was true for, what was true for Paul, what was true for Saul is also true for us. Only God, only God is the only one who can intervene. He's the only one who can intervene on his behalf and ours regarding sin. There is no other hope for you and me but God's intervention in our lives. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He intervened on our behalf. I love this. When I think of Saul's conversion, I love this. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. I need to say that again. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Do not give up on those friends. Do not give up on that family member. Do not give up on that neighbor. Do not give up on that employer. Do not give up on that employee because there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Grateful for that. Grateful for that. So are you in need of an intervention? You came to church today or you joined us online today with one thing in mind. Does God have other plans? And if he does, say it's all right. I'm all right, it's okay, it's okay, because I'm going to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to kick against them, but I'm going to say, God, thank you for intervening in my life and make the necessary changes. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 4, repent then and turn to God. Be converted so that your sins may be wiped out in the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Amen. Amen. Second observation, reluctant obedience. Reluctant obedience. So we have divine intervention, now reluctant obedience. Chapter 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
Maybe like me, you've had an opportunity to meet an influential person, maybe a famous person. And our responses to that can be kind of all over the map. We can kind of get excited. We can be a little intimidated. We might even be a little bit frightened. How are we going to react when we talk to somebody? Now think about this for a moment. I cannot imagine all the things that might be going through Ananias' mind when God says, hey, I want you to go hang out with this guy who's the number one enemy of all things Christian, okay? I want you to go spend some time with him. What? You know, Lord, do you have the right number? Well, I think that's, I think it's legitimate because you notice what he's saying. He's saying, now, Lord, do you really know who this guy is? Yeah, he does know who he is. And he's asking Ananias to go. So I would just say, Ananias is a little reluctant. And I get it. I get it. But you know what's really cool? He was reluctant, but he was obedient. He expressed his reluctance, but he followed through with what God had asked him to do. Moses was reluctant, but he obeyed. And the children of Israel came out of Egypt and into the promised land. Jonah was reluctant, and he had a, his reluctance too, and took him to the belly of a fish. Now, let's don't get there, right? But he obeyed, and Nineveh came to faith. An incredible, an incredible turning to God. And then Ananias was reluctant, but he obeyed. And Saul became Paul because of his obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. Listen to this. Follow all the directions the Lord your God has given you, and life will go well for you. Now, do you catch the power of that simple verse? you got to read it one more time. In fact, I think it'd be really good. Everybody look at the screen and let's read it together. Here we go. Ready? Follow all the directions of the Lord your God has given you. Life will go well for you. Amen to that. C.S. Lewis, I love him. He said, obedience is the key that opens every door. Obedience is the key that opens every door. Reluctance but yet obedient, reluctant, yet obedient. Number three, another three is unreserved acceptance. Unreserved acceptance, chapter nine, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom, uh, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Ananias, in obedience, goes to where Saul is, and the scene that we witness speaks to the best of the people of God. You say, well, where, what, where, do you, where are you seeing that? Paul, Saul, a persecutor, okay, a persecutor, a feared individual, a powerful force, an authority figure, a prominent leader, blinded. Now three days he's been praying and fasting and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And then he learns this guy by, by the name of Ananias is coming over to see him. What is he going to say? Is he going to get his dig in saying, ah, ha, 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 look at you. Is he going to just say, you got what you deserve, buddy. Look at what you've done. What is he going to say? It's gonna, he's gonna use his, is he going to use his gotcha moment? Now, some of us would say, man, if I ever had that opportunity with one, this person I'm thinking of right now, I would bring it on right there. That's somewhat human nature, right? 
We want, we want to be, we want to be in that place where we can say, finally, finally, we want our, we want our pound of flesh as it were. But listen to this. The first word, the first words that Saul hears are these, brother Saul. That is an extraordinary statement. Unreserved acceptance. He understands that God has called this man to something dynamic and powerful that's far beyond anything I think Ananias could fully understand or comprehend. And he's obedient and he comes to Saul and he says, brother, he includes him in the family right at that very moment. There is something powerful about that. Brother, are you kidding me? After everything I've done, this man, this is, this is him saying, I can just see it. After every, this man who I don't know, but who most likely knows me, calls me family. I believe that it was true that Saul's reputation preceded him. Ananias knew exactly who he was. Even though reluctant in obedience, he calls him brother. How good is that? And convicting. Ananias, Ananias, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, displays the best of who we are to be as the people of God. Do you understand that? When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of their background, they are a part of the family. And we have a responsibility as the people of God to embrace them as such. We let God do what God's going to do in their life. To clean up, to change, to reverse, to do all that he's going to do. That's God's responsibility. It's not ours. God will do that. Our responsibility is to say, you have put your faith in Christ. You're a brother. You're a sister. We belong together in the family. And that's powerful. Understand, was this risky? For Ananias, well, humanly speaking, yeah. But in obedience, in obedience, hear this, trusting God may be unnerving, but it's never risky. Hear that carefully. It may be unnerving, but it's never risky because we are following the leadership of the one who knows yesterday, today, and who knows tomorrow. So it's never risky. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters, and nor should we. Can we accept those who come to faith with unreserved embrace of a family? I want to be that guy that does just that. And let me encourage you. In this moment of time, divine intervention, God's spirit may be speaking to your life to make those changes and put your trust and faith in him. Let let Christ come into your life. Be converted. Turn from those things that have taken you away from where God desires and turn towards God. Let God have charge of your life. Come to faith. Come to faith today. And just like Paul, be filled with the Spirit of God and be baptized. We got baptism coming up 26th of September. If you haven't been baptized, it's time. It's time to be baptized. Number four, an immediate witness. An immediate witness. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Paul spent, excuse me, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call him this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. 
After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in the wall. Saul wastes no time. He wastes no time at all fulfilling the call that God has placed on him. In fact, the text says this, at once, at once. That's as immediate as it can be. I can almost see it. As soon as Paul has regained his strength, he is in the synagogues preaching Jesus as the Messiah. You see, he had all of this background, all of this education, all of this understanding, and it all made sense. And he began at once to proclaim that Jesus is Messiah. It's an amazing, it's an amazing truth. Here's a fun fact for you. When a giraffe is born, okay, when a giraffe is born, this, this is, blows my mind. The giraffe falls nearly six feet from his mother's womb or mother and hits the ground. Now that's a great way to come into the world, isn't it? And it acts, it acts like, like the little slap on the bum to get breathing started in a baby, in a, in a human being. That's what it does. It, it startles the system to begin to breathe. Now, if you think that's, okay, wow, that's a great way to come into the world, six foot drop and smack. Get this. Within 30 to 45 minutes, the giraffe is up and walking. 30 to 45 minutes. And within the first day, they're running. Thank goodness it's a giraffe and not a human being, all right? Okay, right now we're living with two little ones and they run everywhere. I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy, the energy. But here's what's amazing about it. When you think about it, a giraffe is going to, the baby's going to have to stand in order to nurse. That's just the way it is. There's, there's, no, there's no other way around it. Not only that, adult giraffe are not as vulnerable to predators because they, they a, a full-grown giraffe, 19 feet tall. Come on, that's, so the, the predators just say, forget this. I'm going to something else like an antelope about my size. I can take them on. Not a giraffe. But a baby is vulnerable. So a baby has to learn to run with the herd to be protected. You say, well, Gary, that's all fascinating, but what in the world does that have to do with anything? All right, here you go. I'm going to get there. I'm getting there. Ready? Here we go. Here's the reason. Most of their life, most of their life will be spent on their feet. Okay? They weren't born to sit. And as the great theologian Bruce Springsteen said, they were born to run. <laughs> they were born to run. Hear this. We are not converted in order to savor the experience, but in order to share the faith. Do you hear me? We are not born to sit. We're born to run. We are not born to just savor the experience. Oh, look at what God's done in my life. This is so cool. Man, this is just great. I'm just going to sit. Man, this is as good as it gets. We are not born to that. We are not converted in order to just savor the experience. We are to share our faith. And Paul, Saul is an example of that. There are two miracles and two responses in a, in a couple of stories that Jesus, that Jesus is involved in. And here's what he said in Mark chapter 5. Here's what Mark says. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis, in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. One more. Mark 7, verse 36. This is on the occasion of a deaf and dumb man being healed. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. (laughs) But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Isn't it interesting? Two different different responses. On the one, Jesus said, go tell him, and they immediately did. One said, Jesus, don't, and they couldn't stop. But I wonder if we are as immediate, if we are at once sharing what God has done in our life. And that's all that Saul did, was tell people what Jesus had done for him. What a wretched man that I am. I tried to destroy, but God intervened. And now I'm sharing the good news with you. What an incredible opportunity for us. It's interesting too, not only did Saul immediately begin to share the good news of Jesus, (laughs) but he also immediately experienced the suffering Jesus had promised. Isn't that interesting? You remember what what God said to Ananias? He said, go tell him how much he's going to suffer for me. Now, wouldn't that be, isn't that terrific? But that's exactly what happened. As soon as he began to preach, they began to persecute him. And he had to hide and be lowered in a basket through the wall. So just bear in mind, 2 Timothy 3, we've used this many times. Yes, and those who decide to please Christ by living godly lives will suffer at the hands of those who hate him. Of those who hate him. Affliction, I found this quote, I thought it was terrific. Affliction is often that thing which prepares an ordinary person for some sort of extraordinary destiny. And I I can't help but believe that was absolutely true in Saul's life. And lastly, this morning, the fifth observation is unhesitating advocacy. Unhesitating advocacy. Acts 9, verse 26, And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Advocacy is being supportive, pleading for someone else. You're pleading their case, an advocate. And Saul needed an advocate. Remember, Jesus had warned his disciples that there are going to be probably people that show up who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay, so the disciples are going, wait a minute. <laughs> this can't, can this really be happening? They were a little hesitant. And you have to understand kind of their perspective on things. Someone might try to infiltrate. So here, Saul needed an advocate. Well, he found one found one by the name of Joseph. You go, who? Joseph. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. For instance, there was Joseph, one of the, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought money to the disciples. Nicknames are, are curious things. Nicknames are curious things. I've had my share of nicknames, none of which are particularly flattering. I wish I could choose my own nickname. If I could choose my own nickname, it'd be something like Stud or something like that, you know, that would really... I'm kidding, of course. 
Because we, we kind of, we try to find the very best possible thing that that becomes our nickname, you know. But that's not what nicknames are. It's people have name you. They call you certain things. <laughs> Whether we like it or not, that becomes our nickname. I still have some I'm stuck with by some of these crazy friends I have from college. Oh, it's just irritating. No, it's not really irritating. It's kind of flattering, I guess. Here's my point. Joseph's nickname is Barnabas. Okay, we call him Barnabas. That's what we, we don't call him Joseph. We don't call him Joseph the Levite from Cyprus. We call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so from that, get this, he most likely had a dad or a mom or both who were encouragers because he's the son of encouragement. Now that's one possibility. He could have just been, we're just gonna call him son of encouragement, but I tend to think he comes from a family of encouragers and he himself becomes an encourager, and out of that, he's an advocate for someone who needs an advocate. And I want to tell you something. There's nothing like having someone on your side who encourages you and who affirms you in who you are and all that God has done in your life. That happens to Saul. And I believe it defines him. It defines him, and it defines a relationship with he and Barnabas that they will share for years. Understand you know, Barnabas lived out the gift of encouragement and the affirmation it provided, established Saul alongside the 12. Romans chapter 12. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. I wonder, I wonder if Paul, when he wrote that to the Romans, had Barnabas in mind when he mentioned encouragement. I don't know. He might have. But my point is this. If you have a gift that God has given you, put it into practice. And I would tell you that if you have the gift of encouragement, look at me. Encourage others. Let encouragement be the first thing, not discouragement. And some believe that that is a gift of the Spirit. They have the gift of discouragement, and they will do everything they can to allow you to experience their gift. No, be encouragers, be encouragers. So we bring this to a close this morning, Acts 9.31. The story closes, here's what we read. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. What I believe we see is a healthy and effective church. Now, there are five things that are characterized in healthy and effective church. Number one is peace. External interference was minimalized. They were strong in the faith. They were growing in God's grace and knowledge. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. They were growing numerically. And they were godly, living in the fear of the Lord. Now, here's, I got to thinking about this. I wonder, I wonder, if we were to allow God's divine intervention in our lives, if we were obedient regardless, even though we might be reluctant, we were obedient regardless, if we were accepting in unreserved ways, if we were to witness without hesitation immediately, and we were to advocate for and encourage others, might we see greater health and effectiveness at Crossroads Church? 
I tend to think the answer is yes. Why? Because they're godly qualities. And I believe God would honor those qualities and help us be the effective church that he desires that we would be. Pray with me if you would. Thanks, Lord, for your word this morning. And I pray that in these next few moments you just complete what you've begun through worship, through communion, and through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. Go back into a time of worship in a moment. I'll ask our prayer team to come to the front of the auditorium, and they'll be available to you to pray with you about whatever needs you may have. But I would just ask this question. I want to ask a few questions, so hang with me for just a minute, if you would. And and I want you to think about what I'm saying. And there's, there's nothing in my mind specifically. It's very general. But I wonder if anyone in the room would join me in saying, I need some intervention. I need some divine intervention in my life and circumstances. You know, I just, I need that. I'm just wondering, anybody else besides me that just needs some divine intervention? We need God to interrupt some things, change the course of some things, maybe knock us off our horse. Oh, knock us off our high horse? Huh? Think about it, folks. One of the things that I mentioned, I said, what, how are you doing with the thing with, called pride? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Three categories of sin. Everything falls under those three. There it is. How are we doing with that? We need some divine intervention. I do. I do. I'm willing to admit that. I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm taking a self-assessment by God, with God's help, and I'm not going to kick against the goads. I'm going to allow the promptings of the Holy Spirit to direct my life. Amen? That's more important. That's more important. What about... This obedience thing. I know obedience keeps showing up in the Bible, huh? Kind of annoying, right? Every time we come to church, we're talking about obedience. What in the world's going on? Seems like the Lord has something to say to me about it. Maybe reluctant, but you know how important obedience is. What about accepting those who come to faith in Christ? Not judgmental. We're going to talk about that in the Curious series. But just saying, God, I want want to be the best that I can be. I want to show the love of Christ to others when when someone embraces faith. Or what about this at once thing? I'm not going to savor the experience of what God has done in my life, but I'm going to share the faith. And then finally, be an advocate, encourager. Can we? Can we? What if, what if all of us in the room, all of us joining online, all of us at Crossroads Church said, in the next 12 months, my goal is, I am going to be an encourager. With God's help, I am not going to go down this pathway. I'm going down that pathway. I'm going to encourage every opportunity I get. What might happen in your life? What might happen in the lives of those around you? So Jesus, you see these things in our hearts this morning. We commit them to you. Divinely interrupt us. Work on our obedience, our acceptance. Lord, I pray that we would share our faith. We, Lord, that each of us would be the encouragers you're calling us to be. And Lord, if we have not put our faith in Christ today, I pray that right at this moment we would. We would invite you. Jesus, come into my life. Turn me away from the, the things that would lead me down a pathway to destruction. And Lord, I want to be on the pathway to life. 
So help me make that turn. You, you turn me around. You got to turn me around. If you have to knock me off my horse, then do so. Lord, I, I'm yours. Putting my trust and my faith in you. And Jesus, we come to you today with our needs, our lives. We give them to you. In these moments of worship and praise, I pray that those who respond in prayer, Lord, would just sense the power and the presence of God in a very real and wonderful way. Do miracles in our lives as we worship and as we pray this morning in Jesus' name.